Father, we bow humbly in your presence and we readily acknowledge that we understand ourselves and we are weak people. We are easily distracted and we are easily broken down. Father, thank you that your word, you tell us that you know our frame and it is but dust. And so, Father, your grace means so much to us this morning and it is by grace that we'll carry on. It is by grace that we'll take our Bibles and we'll open them and we'll study them together. And it's by grace that we'll receive such a great salvation that is so undeserved. It's by grace that we will implement obedience in our lives. It's by grace, Father, that we'll go from here and accomplish your purposes in us. Thank you, Father, what it means to us to gather together and the strength that it brings us. And thank you for our Bibles. Use them now, Lord. Cut into us. Challenge us and grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know that it's not a good day for a pastor when someone comes to them and gives you a piece of paper and says, we're leaving your church and here's our reasons why. Not a good day for a pastor. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often, but I do remember one occasion a number of years ago when someone came to me and they told me that they're family was leaving, and I do appreciate it if people leave that they at least say so, so that you know what's happening, and they handed me a piece of paper, and on the paper were 11 reasons why they were leaving our church, and uh, that was helpful because um, at least you know what they're thinking. It was interesting, for example, it was heavyweight matters like you sit down when you sing some of your songs. That was one of them. I can't remember all of them, the parts about the preaching and the pastor. I've forgotten all of that. But, um, you know, interesting, isn't it, that when people leave a church, and there is a time to leave a church, it's not always easy. It should be very difficult to leave a church. It should be a very long and prayer-filled process, and you should live with a high level of commitment to the body of Christ where you're connected But I've never had anybody have on their list, I'm leaving this church because you don't pray enough. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind, but will you take your Bibles this morning and will you return with me to the epistle in the New Testament of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Timothy, We're going to begin chapter 2 this morning. If you've just begun attending Fellowship Bible Church over the holidays or different ones, you uh, you need to know that we're preaching through the book of 1 Timothy. Here's how you need to think about 1 Timothy. All right? It was written by the Apostle Paul. That's a name that almost everyone recognizes. The great, mighty Apostle Paul wrote much of our New Testament. Remember that he often got himself in trouble for preaching the gospel, and he would get thrown in prison. He had been in prison, got out of prison, decided to take a trip to visit some of the churches, and one of the churches that he wanted to visit was the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a very important ministry church. Um, you'll find it specifically referenced in, well, in a couple places in our Bible, but two particularly. One is Paul wrote an entire letter to them, and that in our New Testament is the book of Ephesians. And it's to the Ephesian believers. Another place, and some of you remember in Revelation, beginning in chapter 2, in the last book of the New Testament, there is a section where John, in his vision on the Isle of Patmos, wrote 
seven, there are seven churches that are referenced there, and one of them is Ephesus. And, and they are charged with doing a lot of things correctly, but they had forgotten and turned away from and left their first love, the Lord Jesus. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? That you can do a lot of things right in church, but you can kind of fall out of love with Jesus. Going through the motions, but not in love with Jesus. Well, Ephesus and the Ephesian believers were very important to Paul. So when he got out of prison, he decided to take a trip to visit him, visit them, and he recognized that there were some real needs in the church. And they were in a season as a church where they needed corrected. And that's what chapter 1 was all about. The first thing he went at was that they had turned away from a pure gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ alone was God in the flesh who had come to earth to be our sin bearer, go to the cross, pay the penalty before a holy God, buried, resurrected the third day. They had gotten away from those things and they had gone back to Old Testament legalism and keeping the law and the works of the flesh, trying to do things to be saved on their own apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial work at the cross alone. So chapter 1 is about correcting false doctrine in the church and we've covered that pretty thoroughly. What you need to know is that when he went to Ephesus, he recognized all this, and then he left and went up into Macedonia, but he left a young pastor named Timothy there. And young Timothy was written a letter. He writes him a letter back because he's thinking about all the things that he saw at Ephesus, and he wants to write him a letter, and that's what we have when we open our Bibles to 1 Timothy, a letter from the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy, whom he assigned at that church at Ephesus to stay there and shepherd the flock and straighten them out. What a daunting job. And he is a young man. We'll talk about that later when he tells him, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Um, but Timothy had his work cut out for him. And isn't it interesting when we open our Bibles that 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul could write a letter to a young pastor to the church at Ephesus to help them know how to do church better, to help them know how to live for the Lord, to help them know how to live the Christian life. And 2,000 years later, on a Sunday morning in Shenandoah Junction, West Virginia, we can open our Bibles, and it's just as applicable to us as it was to them. Isn't that remarkable? It's right there. You know, people don't change, do they? And the Word of God doesn't change. And our relationship with Christ doesn't change. And it's all right there for us. And so that's why we're studying 1 Timothy. We're studying 1 Timothy so that we can do church a little bit better here at Fellowship Bible Church. So that we make sure that we pay attention to the teachers who've gone on before us and instructed us. That we can fulfill God's plan and purpose for ourselves as a church body. Well, Paul doesn't say it when he starts chapter 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we begin back this morning after our holiday break, our Christmas and New Year's break. But one of the things that is obvious when the Apostle Paul begins in chapter 2 is that what had begun to happen at the church at Ephesus is they had, they had stopped praying. They were no longer categorized as a praying church. That's easy to do, isn't it? We're going to talk about some of the reasons in a little bit why it's easy not to pray. But one of the things that was happening was the church was not praying, and the Apostle Paul starts in with Timothy, and after chapter 1 of correcting false doctrine, chapter 2 begins with a focus on prayer. 
how to pray, what kinds of prayers the church should be praying, and for whom they should be praying. Let's read our text for this morning. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in this passage, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Apostle Paul begins, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why, this is good. And this pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. Timothy, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Let's just stop right there, and as a matter of fact, I'll let you in on a secret. We're only going to get through verse 1 this morning. And uh, to do that, we want to talk about three things, okay? We want to talk about the call to prayer. Okay, the call to prayer, Paul is calling Timothy to lead the church to become a praying church. That's the call to prayer. We'll look at that in a second. The next thing we want to look at on there is the kinds of prayer. The kinds of prayer. Paul's going to list four kinds of prayers in verse 1. And then we're going to wrap up by commenting briefly on the circle of prayer. The circle of prayer. Who should we pray for? For whom should we pray? All right? Well, let's go back to our text and... Let's recognize that perhaps, like the Ephesian church, we could be guilty of prayerlessness as well, couldn't we? It's interesting to me that, um, you know, when we call a prayer meeting, or if we call a special prayer meeting, very poor attendance. And in fact, if we wanted to, we could say, how are we going to get people out to pray? Let's have pizza, and then we'll pray, and we would have a bigger crowd. What is that all about? The call to prayer, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that these four kinds of prayers go on. Requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. I want you to notice Paul's language, and this is where we get the idea that this is a call to prayer. You need to understand that when you read the book, when you read the letter, chapter 2 is very much a division of a section of his letter where Paul is giving Timothy instruction in worship. It's a very interesting passage, and it's not without its controversy. We've touched on it before, and we're going to deal more thoroughly with it this time even. It's going to talk about even such personal things as how women should dress when they come to church. That'll be quite a message. And so he says, I urge you. Now, that's a phrase that the Apostle Paul used on occasion. Do you remember? A very familiar passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Remember how the Apostle Paul started that? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and so forth. I ur- Think about the word. When you urge, that's important, right? It's, it's not passive. It's active. It's the idea that this is important. There's some energy. There's some enthusiasm. And I am urging you. And so when the Apostle Paul says to you, I urge you to do this, It's more than just a recommendation. It's like, I really want you to do this. And notice how he adds to it that, first of all, 
of first importance. Listen, Timothy, when you gather as a church and as a church characterized as individuals, I am urging you to know that of first importance is to interact in prayer and intercession for everyone and even for kings. Ultimately, the motivation for their prayer is so that all men everywhere will be saved. Wow. So the first thing we have to see when we open the text is that the call to prayer is, first of all, letter A under our call to prayer is that it is a priority. It's a priority. He urges us, and he says it's of first importance. It's a priority. But I also, as I referenced, chapter 2 is about public worship and about the people in the church and how they live. I think there's an application here both to public and to private prayer. First of all, recognize that when you come to church, Paul is saying to Timothy that when they gather, there ought to be these kinds of prayers going on. How many minutes do we spend praying in our public services? Well, you say that depends on who prays. <laughs> well, let's think about our public prayer. If Paul is telling Timothy to tell the believers at Ephesus that they need to really pray and they need to pray these things, doesn't it seem like it should have more than about three and a half minutes of our time? I wonder what would happen if we prayed for 30 minutes in our services. Oh, attendance would go down. We would never do that. But Paul's saying first of first importance is that you pray and it's in the context of public worship. Let's think about public prayer for just a minute because we do have at the beginning of our service, as we did this morning, and we, as you notice, have invited our deacons and our elders. We rotate them through and the pastors sprinkle in so that you have a sense of who our elders and deacons are, church leaders, as well as when someone prays, don't you get to know their heart a little bit? But let's think about public worship. He doesn't give this instruction. This is Pastor Van just encouraging the church for a minute. Do you know that when we pray publicly, and somebody comes up here to pray, or we call on someone to pray, what a unique time that is. It's believers gathered, and we are going to join our minds and our hearts, and we're going to have one voice represent us in the presence of God, whose presence is here, who has invited us in Jesus' name to access His holy presence, to come boldly into His presence, Hebrews says. And so that's not a time, think about it, that's not a time to look at your phone. It's not a time to see what time it is. It's not a time to time the guy up on the platform and see how long he's going to pray. I'll tell you something. Compared to the good old days, like when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a pastor, our pastoral prayers, we call that our pastoral prayers, traditionally in many of our churches, that was held for the pastor to lead the church in prayer, the opening, that opening pastoral prayer slot. And we've chosen to let our church leaders at large do that. I think there's benefit from that. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon would, preach, would pray his pastoral prayer, it would go as long as 20 minutes. Often it was 12, 15 minutes like that. You know, I think that Christians gathered bowed in prayer, who don't like to pray more than two or three minutes, must be mighty wimpy Christians. What do you think? Or we're very distracted.
in public prayer, it's not a time to daydream. It's not a time to time the guy. I remember I caught myself in the early service because this is on my mind that when Rob Runyon was praying this morning, I found that one of the thoughts that went through my mind that I identified was, I wonder if the people have noticed that the missionary flags are down. And I wonder if they wonder why. That was going on in my mind during prayer. You see, if you don't make yourself pay attention, you will daydream, won't you? It's one reason why we bow our head. We do that out of respect to a holy God. It'll come, hey God, what's up? High five God. That's not the kind of God that I believe the Bible presents to us. But we come with a sense of awe, don't we? One of the problems in Israel of old that Jeremiah referenced was that they had lost their awe, A-W-E. They had lost the fact that, that we serve a holy God. And in the presence of a holy God, you come before him and you feel like Isaiah in chapter 6 where he says, he falls on his face and he says, I am, I am unclean. And, and you recognize that you just have to bow your head and we're humble before a holy God. And so as a congregation, what does it mean really? for us to significantly and thoughtfully bow our heads before a holy God. We are not an arrogant people. We are unworthy people. And it's by your grace that we can enter your presence. And then one of our men begins to pray. And we're not thinking, how long is this guy going to pray? He pronounced that word different. You don't critique prayer like that. Now, obviously, we pray with our intelligence and Our men should be careful to pray accurate theology and not pray something erroneously. But it's not a time to to kind of put somebody down for the way they pray. Prayer is a very personal thing, isn't it? And when that one person is speaking, you have to discipline your mind to engage with their words so that humbly together as a congregation, we are being represented with one voice and it's as though all of us are in agreement together. That's a discipline. That's an exercise. I think it's very important, and the Apostle Paul surely is referencing public prayer in worship. Do this. I urge you, do this. Do it carefully. But I think there's also an application to private prayer here. And when it comes to private prayer, I think we have a few problems. Now, I have not done a survey. I've not done a survey, and I don't know exactly what I'm talking about here. You say, what's new with that? I had Fellowship Bible Church. I say, um, I know people fairly well. I know my own Christian life and Christian walk and my own pastoral responsibilities. And I know how hard it is for me to maintain a private prayer life. And I know that many of you struggle like I or even worse. So let's talk for just a minute about our private prayer life because if we're not praying privately... How meaningful will public prayer be to us? And I think there's an application here as well. One of the first things I thought about is in Paul's call to prayer and that it's to be a priority and it's to be public, but it's to be private. There are problems with that prayer. And let me suggest a couple problems. This is not out of the text. This is some thoughts that I've had that I hope will be helpful to you. Why is it that As Christians, and we know, and the scripture is filled with instruction about prayer, that it is hard for us to be consistent. I'm not talking about just like, oh, Lord, help me get to work on time. See, I prayed. 
Lord, thank you for this food. Turn the channel. Hey, I was watching that. I'm talking about God's people who interact with their Heavenly Father in personal prayer where they are on their knees, where there is a season in their life, whether it's 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes, where you are focused in actual prayer. Okay? That is not to say that you cannot have meaningful prayer. I, I do regularly have meaningful prayer sometimes, and this is the only time I'm comfortable to do it. I put my hands up in the ears when I'm all alone and I know nobody's watching out in the woods when I'm walking my dog, and I'll pray. But even that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, that's good. Those are good times to have a prayer walk, take your dog for a walk, and just pray. Or while you're driving, you can pray. But I'm talking about a consistent, basically characterized as a daily time where you literally get on your knees and you enter into a season of prayer. Why wouldn't we do that? I think one reason we don't do it is because first problem is what I call skepticism. Skepticism. That is, we lack faith. How many of you have been praying for something for many years, and in the back of your mind, when you pray for it, you kind of think, oh, Lord, I'm never going to answer that prayer. That's the kind of skepticism I'm talking about. Or you pray for somebody. You pray for somebody that you pray for healing, but they've got brain cancer and liver cancer going at the same time, and in the back of your mind, you, you have no hope that God's going to heal them. And you don't pray in faith believing. And I think ultimately that even discourages us to pray, doesn't it? We're just like, I don't know if prayer even does any good. Kind of a Christian skepticism. Oh, well. Closely related to that problem is problem number two, what I call a skewed sovereignty. A skewed view of the sovereignty of God. I mean... We believe that God is over all things, don't we? We believe that God knows what he's doing. We believe that the days of a person's lives are written in God's book before any one of them come to be, Psalm 119. So then, if God is in control and God knows the end from the beginning, then what good does it do for me to to get down and pray? Because God's going to do what God's going to do. And that's kind of a skewed... Listen, I do not have a corner on understanding the theology of prayer. How is it that a sovereign, mighty, changeless, unchanging God who does know the end from the beginning calls for his children to bow before him and to enter into prayer and that somehow God reacts to that prayer? I wonder if as a church, like evidently the church at Ephesus, because Paul said, I urge you, start praying. You're not praying. Pray. I wonder if we have not even begun to experience the blessing of God or the knowledge of God's will for our church because we are so prayerless. Wouldn't it be something that the shoots of heaven, God has his hand on the lever and he's just waiting for us to humble ourselves and be on our knees before the Lord and then he opens up the the shoots of heaven in a way that We've never experienced because we have been such a prayerless people by and large, characteristically. I'm not saying that that's across the board. I know that there are some of you who are very good at this and very disciplined. But I think the average Christian in America does not pray very much. 
One of the problems is our skepticism, our lack of faith. Some of it might be our skewed view of God's sovereignty. The, another thought that I have as to why we don't pray has to do with our schedules, doesn't it? Our schedules. I find that um, to have a meaningful prayer life means to calm down and to slow down and to quiet down, and almost none of us are good at that. Uh, regardless of the demographic, I, I hear some of our retired guys, and they're scurrying about and mowing this lawn and then getting their wife over to here, and they're doing this, and they've got this project. And so, I've been busier since I'm retired. I don't know how I ever worked my job. And some of you young moms, you've got infant babies to take care of, and you're up all hours of the night, and you're utterly exhausted, and you've got other little rugrats running around, and you're trying to take care of them, or you're homeschooling, and you're just overwhelmed, and you can't meet your deadlines, or you're trying to balance being a wife, a mother, and an employee. Some of you even run your own businesses, and you have employees to oversee. You have no time. Some of you men commute. You've got pressure on you. You've got demands, you've got ball team schedules, and the next thing you know, what happens? It's late at night, we haven't had any time, and I just need some time, and we hit the clicker, and we need to decompress in front of the television before we go to sleep. I've shared this book with you before, but it's worth mentioning again. I read this book, and I totally agree with this book, and it's had zero impact on my life, but um, it's a good book. Because I don't have the courage to, to do what it says. It's a book called Margin by a medical doctor named Richard Swenson. He kind of became well known during the 90s when he wrote this book. And Dr. Dobson caught on to it when Dr. Dobson was going big with Focus on the Family. Richard Swenson in his book Margin uses as a word picture a book for a model of our lives. So that, you know, when you open a book, you see where the lines and the spaces are. I don't know if you can see that, but you know what I'm talking about. And you notice that the print does not run off the page. It doesn't start at the very top of the page. It doesn't run to the bottom of the page. And you notice if they wanted to, they could adjust the lines just a little bit, and they could actually fit another whole line in between the lines. Why, if you stop and look at it, there's quite a bit of wasted space on this page. But what happens is, if you do it that way, if you printed the page from left to right, from top to bottom, in between, close typed, and if you open that book, it would be overwhelming and it would be difficult to read the page. And so they do what? They give the page margin. They give it space. This is what Richard Swenson says margin looks like. He says, the conditions of modern day living devour margin. If you are homeless, we direct you to a shelter. If you are penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you are breathless, we connect the oxygen. But if you are marginless, we give you one more thing to do. Marginless is being 30 minutes late to the doctor's office because you were 20 minutes late getting out of the hairdressers because you were 10 minutes late dropping the children off at school because the car ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station and you forgot your purse. Margin, on the other hand, is having breath left at the top of the staircase, money left at the end of the month, and sanity left at the end of adolescence. Marginless is the baby crying and the phone ringing at the same time. 
Margin is grandma taking the baby for the afternoon. Margin less is being asked to carry a load five pounds heavier than you can lift. Margin is a friend to carry half the burden. Margin less is not having time to finish the book you're reading on stress. Margin is having the time to read it twice. Marginless is fatigue. Margin is energy. Marginless is red ink. Margin is black ink. Marginless is hurry. Margin is calm. Marginless is anxiety. Margin is security. Marginless is culture. Margin is counterculture. Marginless is reality. Margin is remedy. Marginless is the disease of the 1990s and the 2000s. Margin is its cure. You've got the point. One of the reasons I think that we're not good at a successful prayer life is because we live, by and large, marginless lives. I think that um, that's one of the problems. It's our schedule. Let me give a few more thoughts from a pastoral perspective And let me just call this some pointers then for prayer. Some pointers for prayer. Okay, let's just think about what we're doing here. Point number one of our message is Paul's call to prayer. Under Paul's call to prayer in chapter 2 verse 1, we see that it is a priority. He urges us to pray. We see that, that it is first of all, it is a priority. We recognize that in the context of the letter, chapter 2 deals certainly with public prayer. But we also recognize that there's an application to personal prayer. And in our personal prayer life, we want to address some of our problems. Our problems are we don't have enough faith. We're skeptics. Our problem is we have a skewed view of God and His response to prayer. Our problem is that our schedules are too slammed. And so let me give then finally a few pointers that might be helpful for us to implement a meaningful prayer life. First of all, I want to suggest that to have a meaningful prayer life, it must be scheduled time. Scheduled time. Okay, so let's test it. When are you going to pray today? Uh, I don't know, uh, at halftime. No, you won't. You're going to use the bathroom at halftime. Oh, I'll pray when I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> Janet's got this thing going that she wants to spend more time with me. I don't get it, but... <laughs> Janet's my wife, if you're new here. My lovely wife of 27 years. And uh, so one of the things she keeps telling me is, you've got to schedule it in your calendar, in your daytimer, or it'll never happen. And I say, okay, okay, I'll do that. And then I don't do it, and so guess what? I mean, all all the woman wants after 27 years is like once a week for me to either take her to breakfast or take her to lunch or take her to supper where I shut my phone off and I just like look her in the eye and talk. She's got this thing about talking. It's like talk, 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 talk. And I keep saying, okay, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. And then I don't put it in my calendar. So guess what doesn't happen that week? Breakfast, lunch, or supper with the lovely Janet Marceau. I mean, you would think that would be great. It is. How stupid can you get? It's the same way with our prayer life. You know, if you don't schedule it, you can have the best of intentions. You can say you want to do it. You can say you're going to do it. But if you don't schedule it, you've got to hard schedule it. 
If you're a person who runs your life with a calendar, and many of you are, you, you know you have to work the calendar. You have to pull out your, your, your Palm Pilot or what, I don't know, that's an old word now, I don't know. I use a leather book, okay? I use a day timer with an with a ink pen, and that's what I'm going to keep using. And, and you got to just like, okay, scheduled time. You figure it out. Is there 15 minutes? Maybe if you're a mom, it's like as soon as the kids start school or leave for school in the morning and you're still not ready and you've got 15 minutes and you really like to watch the Today Show for a minute, but you need to take those 15 minutes and you need to go to a different place in the house and you need to, for 15 minutes, you need to pray. You need to sit down. might help you to take a cup of tea. And you sit down and you begin to pray. And you talk to your Heavenly Father and you tell Him about your day and you tell Him about how you're feeling and you ask for His help and you ask for His grace and you lift up your children. We'll talk a little bit more about specific prayers in just a minute. But it must be a scheduled time. The second thing I want to suggest is that it needs, and it's related to what I just said, it needs to be a specific place. A specific place. Because if you don't know where you're going to go to pray, you probably won't get there. And in that specific place, may I suggest that it needs to be, first of all, Free from people's eyes. There is something that happens to all of us if we know we're being watched. And it is very difficult to focus and to quiet down. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. And then I want you to leave your Bible open there for a few minutes because we're going to look at another passage in Matthew 7. So open to Matthew 6 and notice what Jesus said. In teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, beginning with verse Five, notice his specific teaching. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Look what he says. And when you pray, do not be... Notice that he's assuming we do pray. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Look what it says. To be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, here's Jesus' advice to us, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many or repetitious words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, you don't have to use ritualistic prayers. You can be conversational with God in prayer. But did you notice that Jesus said, go somewhere and shut your door? And so I'm saying, figure out maybe five out of seven days when you can pray and then figure out a specific place, schedule time, specific place, free from people's eyes. Maybe in your house you have a guest room. And you can make your way to that guest room and you can go in and you can close the door and nobody notices. Maybe at your office complex, there is an unused office or a conference room that you know a certain time of the day, everybody is kind of away from that area and you can go in and you can actually shut the door and be alone in that room. And you can be out of sight. And if you can, I want to suggest that it will help your prayer life immensely if when you pray you will get on your knees. I'm saying there's nothing you can say, oh, Pastor Van, people can pray. I know. I think it was Jeremiah prayed in a well upside down on his head. 
you know? Obviously, Jonah prayed in the belly of a whale down in the deep blue sea, right? But I'm telling you that if you want to get serious about your prayer life and you want to be past the fluff, get on your knees because there is something about the posture of getting on your knees. And you say, but I've had two knee replacements and I can't do that. Well, then sit on your bottom. But pray. It's not magical, but I'm telling you, it's valuable to get on your knees. Make sure it's free from technology. Turn your phone off. Make sure your laptop's not in the same room. Make sure the television can't be heard. Free from technology. And it needs to be free from interruption. It has to be a time when your baby doesn't need you or when your secretary doesn't need you or when you're supposed to be working the lever on a drawbridge or a dump truck and they don't need you to pull the lever. Okay? Just make sure you're not, you know, you're not wiring 220 electric right at this time. Free from interruption, on your knees, in a quiet place, out of sight. You with me? You try it. Have you ever tried it? It is a discipline, and of all the spiritual disciplines, I think an effective prayer life is one of the most difficult disciplines to carry out consistently. You need a scheduled time, you need a specific place, and then finally, let me suggest really quickly that you need a strategic plan. What do I mean by a strategic plan? I mean that if you just go and sit down and are empty, that can work for a while. Just, I want to just be alone with the Lord. I just want to pray. But I would suggest that you do something very simple. Start with this. Go get a blank piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, blank piece of paper. Take that paper and just fold it in half. Take the half and fold it in half again. There you go. Simple. Now, at the top of the paper, when you open it, you now have eight vertical panels. Of those eight, take seven of them and label them by the day of the week. And then you begin to let the Lord burden your heart for a daily prayer list. So what you're going to pray on Monday, what you're going to pray on Tuesday, what you're going to pray on Wednesday, what you're going to pray on Thursday. The open day, add some miscellaneous stuff that you're going to come at once in a while. Maybe the missionaries of Fellowship Bible Church. Maybe some of the things off the prayer list on Wednesday night. It's not wrong every day of the week across the page to have your spouse and your children and your grandchildren. They should be there every day of the week. Your pastors, they should be there every day of the week. You see? But now it's simple. You say, well, I wouldn't know how to fill up even 10 minutes. No. And see what you have here. You can easily flip this into the paper clip in the back of your Bible, and nobody even knows it's there. And then when you're in church, and Pastor Van mentions that Dolly Dolly Eshbaugh has started morphine, then you know, oh, Lord, your servants, Bill and Dolly Eshbaugh. Oh, Lord, it has taken a step that we've been dreading. And now you write Bill and Dolly and morphine, and you've got that right in the back of your Bible. And then now you get on your knees. If you can't pray for Bill and Dolly for at least two minutes, shame on you. Right? And so you know what to do here. You're hearing things. You get it. You get it. You've got enough prayer requests in your whole family to fill this whole front and back, this whole page front and back. All right? So those are hopefully some things that are helpful Very quickly, let's look at Paul's list of the kinds of prayers. That's the call to prayer. Let's go, um, actually, put your bulletin or something in chapter 6 of Matthew, because we might turn back there, but let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, our text, and now let's look at the four kinds of prayers, and we will click these off, and you'll, you'll see them. It's not hard to get. 
I urge you then, first of all, okay, this is the call to prayer. It's the priority of prayer. We've acknowledged that there's some problems with prayer. We've given some pointers in prayer. Now let's look at the kinds of prayer. We move from the call to prayer to the kinds of prayer. And the Apostle Paul says, first of all, and he says that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. The first kind of prayers that Paul mentions is requests. If you do a little bit of Greek grammar study, then the commentaries tell me that the root word of the Greek word that's translated into English, this word for requests, comes from a word in the Greek, the root word implies the idea of, of something lacking or to be without. Okay? And so when you make a request, what Paul is probably talking about here as to this kind of prayer is it is need-based prayers. Father, there is a need. So-and-so's car just broke down and they need a car. It's need-based praying to lack or to be without. And so on our list, and as we pray corporately and as we pray privately, we need to pray need-based prayers, requests that people have, that we know that they have. In so doing, think about it, you will fulfill Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where it says to bear one another's burdens. You know what it is to have a need and to find out that somebody's been praying specifically for your need? That helps bear your burden, doesn't it? Another thing that can happen when you're praying need-based praying, and this level, this kind of a prayer request tends to be physical, tends to be practical, and as you're praying for a need-based request, guess what happens? All of a sudden you realize, oh, I can answer that prayer. I've got an extra wheelbarrow for that mason who's flat tire on his wheelbarrow. I've got a chainsaw. I've got a truck. I've got time. I can go sit with that person. I can go help them pull their well out of the ground? You see, you pray for need-based, and often at this level of requests, God will use your prayer to stir your heart to impact the life of somebody in the church. The second kind of prayer, by the way, you don't have to turn back to Matthew 7. We were going to look at Matthew 7 here, so if you want to write it down, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. That's where Jesus said, how many of you, if you were a father and your, fa- and your child comes to you and asks you for bread, would give him a stone? How many of you, if your son comes to you and asks you for a piece of fish, you'll give him a scorpion? See, it's need-based. How much more your heavenly Father will meet your need? You have a need, you ask for it, God answers that prayer. The second word is the most difficult to understand in his list because he uses our word in the English for prayer in general. Prayers. But it's part of a list, and so Bible commentaries, um, from my study... Bible commentaries all believe that the Apostle Paul was, was, was indicating a specific kind of prayers. But they didn't all agree as to what he meant, because when you translate the Greek word into English, it comes out prayers. They did agree that it seemed to be God-directed. And so I found it interesting that in Ray Stedman, Ray Stedman was a pastor who's with the Lord now. He was out of Dallas Seminary, pastored a church in Southern California. He wrote a little commentary on 1 Timothy that I enjoy reading and uh, as I prepare my messages. And Ray Stedman said that this, what Paul has on his list of prayers 
are requests that only God can answer. They're prayers that are God-directed. So the first one on the list was requests, and sometimes we can answer that. Prayers are the kinds of things that only God can answer. Lord, would you please take the pneumonia away from Stephen McKenzie today so that he can have the strength to meet with 88 people that he has to meet with this week personally who are going to the far reaches of the world and he's responsible for them. And this is the week that he interfaces with all of them. Lord, would you please take away his pneumonia? All right, you see? It's, it's sort of a request, but it's a prayer to God. It's God-directed, and only God can meet that need. We can't cure pneumonia. No doctor can cure pneumonia. can do some things to kind of encourage it to get cured, but the body has to heal or God has to take it away, right? And so that's what Ray Stebman thinks. Another noted Bible commentary and scholar that I like to read a lot, that I depend on heavily, is from a series of commentaries called the New Testament Commentary Series. And William Hendrickson, William Hendrickson is the writer and dealing with 1 Timothy. And he suggests that what Paul means by prayers in this list of kinds of prayers is that he is suggesting that it is requests for needs that are just always present. So these kinds of prayers are prayers that we're always going to pray and they're never going to not be prayed. What do I mean by that? This would be a kind of thing where you pray for wisdom. Lord, I pray for wisdom. Lord, I pray for courage to live for you in this world. Lord, I pray for a special grace to overcome my temper. Lord, I pray for patience with my children. They say you're not supposed to pray for patience, but you can pray for patience. Lord, I need to calm my heart. You will never, ever stop needing to pray these prayers. So I don't know exactly what it means, but the Apostle Paul says you should pray requests, that is, need-based praying for more practical things, things that maybe we can even respond to, but that God will burden someone's heart to respond to, for prayers, that's God-directed prayers, that likely God himself needs to answer that. We can't do anything about it. It's beyond us. Only God can deal with that. The third kind of prayer that he has is intercessions. Notice he has the word intercessions. An intercession is a prayer on behalf of another person for their problem, and it's usually in the context of them, them, in a lot of times, they don't even care about their problem. All right, so here's the thing. You've got a 19-year-old kid at the apex of idiocy in his life, and he's making decisions that are beyond his own understanding of stupidity, and he's just imploding, he is just destroying his life, He does not wake up in the morning and pray to God to give him wisdom for the day. He does not wake up in the morning and say, Lord, show me from your word today how to guide and direct my steps. He doesn't care at all. All he cares about is whatever his sin is that he's chasing after. But over here is his grandmother in a rocking chair all by herself. And she lifts up her grandson. And she is, what is she doing? She is interceding on his behalf. She is coming into his world by prayer. He doesn't even know it. And this grandmother is making intercession to a holy God that he would somehow come into this young person's life and show them Christ and show them the word and show them their bad decision making and turn their heart back to the things of God and save them 
That's intercession. We have many models of this in Scripture, don't we? One of the, one of the ones that comes to my mind is Genesis chapter, Exodus chapter 32. When Moses and Joshua go up on the mountain, and that's the time when the children of Israel talk to Aaron into building a golden calf, and they're dancing naked around the golden calf and getting drunk and having sexual orgies, and they come down, and, and Aaron says, man, I threw the gold in the fire, and out popped the calf, and, and this, is, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And Moses is enraged. Joshua doesn't know what to think. He's just taking it all in. And God is enraged. And God says to Moses, get outside the camp because I'm snuffing these people out and I'll start a brand new people with you. And what does Moses do? He's a great picture of Christ at that moment, actually. The Bible doesn't say that, but that's what he intercedes on behalf of the people's sin. He says, God... And this is, this is an interesting conversation that Moses and God have, and I can't fully explain it. In the anthropomorphism or in the humanizing of God, it says that God is angry and that God wants to turn his face away from the people. And Moses says, God, you don't want to do this. God, relent of your anger. Spare them. Have mercy on them. And he intercedes. He cuts in on behalf of the people who don't even care about their own ignorance. And he intercedes. He prays for them. And God pulls back his hand of wrath, as it were. The fourth kind of prayer is self-explanatory in the list. And that's thanksgiving. That's thanksgiving. And this also is given testimony of throughout Scripture. In almost every letter in which the Apostle Paul writes, you look in the first few verses... 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians, every, almost every letter that he writes, he says, I thank my God for every remembrance of you, he said in Philippians. I thank my God as I pray for you. He is filled with thankfulness. Christians ought to be grateful people. There are many other verses that instruct us to give thanks to God for all things and to give thanks regularly, Right? And so as we pray publicly and privately, it is taught. Timothy was to instruct the church at Ephesus, and he's instructing us through the Apostle Paul's letter that prayer is to be a priority regardless of the problems. Fix it, make it a priority, and pray these four kinds of prayers. Make requests. Pray requests before your Heavenly Father who knows how to give you bread and not a stone when you ask for it. These general prayers that evidently only God can answer or they're ongoing and we always have to keep praying them. Make intercession on behalf of people who don't even know that you're praying for them and be sure and give thanks in your prayer. I wonder what would happen if Fellowship Bible Church really became a praying church. I don't think it can become a praying church if it doesn't have praying pastors and elders and deacons, you think? And so, this is one of the things as we enter the new year that's a lot like, and picture my imaginary stationary bicycle exercise bike up here. Can you see it? Riding my bicycle. I have one down by my desk in the dungeon where I work on my messages next to my bench press. I never ride the bicycle. 
I hate to ride the bicycle. I ought to ride the bicycle. I think that I will ride the bicycle. It would be very good for me to ride the bicycle. I never get around to riding the bicycle. I think that I'm in pretty good shape, really. Only 20 pounds overweight. And so I convince myself that I don't really need the bicycle. Isn't that a lot the way we are with our prayer life? It's right there. All we have to do is do it. A a stationary bike does no one any good if you don't get on it and pedal pedal the pedals. Nor does a prayer closet do anybody any good if you don't get in there and get on your knees. And you can look at it, and you can say you're going to do it, but if you don't do it, nothing happens. And I wonder how much of nothing has been happening in our world because we don't pray. I cannot give all the answers about prayer. I just know that Christians are supposed to be praying people. And Paul made that abundantly clear that the church is first and foremost called to be a praying church. Are you with me? Let's bow in prayer. Before I close out, let's be still for a few minutes. And I'm not going to ask you to come forward or raise your hand. Maybe I should, but this is, like I said, this is like the stationary bicycle. This is like your diet plan for the new year. You're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. And no one can make you do it. Every wife in here knows what it's like to try to get her husband to go on a diet when he doesn't want to. It doesn't work. The only time it works is when he makes up his mind he's going to do it. The only way you're going to start praying is if you make up your mind that it's time. And that it's time for Fellowship Bible Church to be a praying church. I never got to the circle of prayer. He ends verse 1 by saying, pray for everyone. Pray for everyone. When's the last time you prayed through your church directory? Ever? What would happen if everyone in this church started praying for everyone in this church? Break it down, bite-sized chunks. Characteristic of my lifestyle is that I get in the closet, I'm on my knees, and everyone in this church is praying for everyone in this church. I think we would see God do things we've never seen before. By God's grace, will you be one of those prayer warriors? By God's grace, will you just get a piece of paper and start folding it and start making a list and get it on your schedule and get on your knees and start praying? It's not easy. You'll kneel down and you'll be at war with whatever's on television or whatever your wife told you to do or whatever your boss wants you to do. You'll have to make yourself stay there for 10 minutes for 14 minutes. But watch God bring breakthroughs. Teach yourself how to pray by praying. Will you do it? Now one more thing before I close out. Would you think of one person, one person that you need to become an intercessor for? Would you get a name in your mind right now of someone that you need to become an intercessory prayer warrior on their behalf? You need to intercede with a holy God for them. And will you get them at the forefront of your thinking and will you make sure you pray for them this week? If you can't think, ask God to put them on your heart soon. 
So, Father, would you show us how to become more disciplined in our prayer life? Help us as a church to answer the urgent call to pray. Forgive us for our prayerlessness, which clearly identifies us as fleshly reliant and self-satisfied. And help us to humble our hearts and get on our knees and start praying, Lord, one at a time across this congregation. And may we see your hand at work as never before in 2012. And Father, for the names that are on the minds of people that we need to, for whom we need to intercede, Father, would we hear great testimony of you breaking through hard hearts this year because of the intercessory praying that's going to go on. Commit these concerns and this matter to you, Lord. We need your strength to make it happen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.